0: In the sermon delivered at Church of Our Savior on Sunday, june seventeenth, two thousand seven, Betsy Rosen speaks through the eyes of Sarah Miles in Take This Bread and through the story of the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She illustrates the sometimes offensively open hospitality of God in Christ and the radical commitment of Christianity to feed all who are hungry.
1: In the name of God who feeds us. Last Sunday, Father Richard talked about his recent experience standing in a railway station in Japan of being in what he called a liminal space, one that is neither here nor there but a place of transition between one state and the next. It's a space we've all found ourselves in at some point, often as he did while traveling. You've left one place behind, but you're not yet in the next one, so there's a kind of isolation about it, even a loneliness, but also a strange sort of freedom that allows room for the expanding and deepening of the self. These are my words, Richard, not
0: yours.
1: (laughs) All of which can lead us to a place where God is very close. Because I was intrigued with the concept of the liminal, as Richard described it, I looked it up and discovered that this transitional state exists in a middle place between two others, the preliminal, on one side, and what the authors of the concept have called communitas defined as an unstructured community where all members are equal. That last part resounded somewhere deep inside of me because for the past several weeks, I've been immersed in a book, this book, which I urge you all to read. It's called Take This Bread by Sarah Miles. And although the story it tells includes at its center a profoundly liminal moment It takes place for the most part in the space on the far side of that threshold, moving through that place of emptiness, that sense of marginality and separateness into a place of living, breathing community. It's a story that begins with a piece of bread freely offered and ends in the feeding of the hungry with real bread and rice, and pasta, and fresh fruit and vegetables, and the often messy, imperfect, but life-giving reality of human connection. Raised as an atheist by her parents, Sarah Miles had lived a secular life as a restaurant cook in a typically hot, crowded Manhattan kitchen surrounded by colorful and very profane co-workers, then as a journalist covering wars and insurrections in Central America, and eventually as a divorced mother with a female partner living in the Mission District of San Francisco. In the decade before the book opens, she's been in a very mixed up place, searching for meaning and finding it an ideological commitment. And well, mostly as she looks back on it, in food. She describes significant moments in poor or dangerous neighborhoods where time and again her faith in humanity is renewed by the giving and receiving of nourishment. For instance, a stale cookie from a Jesuit priest who had nothing else to offer her, or in the barrios of El Salvador, a jar of warm milk fresh from the cow. Then, early one morning, years later and back in this country, she wanders into a church, eats a piece of bread, and is radically transformed. She is, well, I'll let her tell you herself. Early one winter morning, she writes, when Katie, her daughter, was sleeping at her father's house I walked into St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in San Francisco. I had no earthly reason to be there. I'd never heard a gospel reading, never said the Lord's Prayer. I was certainly not interested in becoming a Christian, or as I thought of it rather less politely, a religious nut. But on other long walks, I'd passed the beautiful wooden building with its shingled steeples and plain windows, and this time I went in on an impulse with no more than a reporter's habitual curiosity. The rotunda was flooded with slanting morning light. A table in the center of the open empty space was ringed high above by a huge neo-Byzantine mural of unlikely saint figures with gold halos dancing. Outside in the back water trickled from a huge slab of rock set against the hillside. Past the rotunda and a forest of standing silver crosses, there was a spare spacious area with chairs instead of pews where about 20 people were sitting. She walks in, takes a chair, trying not to look conspicuous, notes a man and woman in long tie-dyed robes chanting in harmony, and more or less does what everybody else is doing, standing up, sitting down, listening, waiting, standing up, sitting down again. It occurs to her that it's all kind of ridiculous, though peaceful and interesting. Then a woman announces, Jesus invites everyone to his table, and Sarah starts moving with the others towards the big table in the rotunda, which has on it, she notices, some dishes and a pottery goblet. She continues, and then we gathered around that table, and there was more singing and standing. And someone was putting a piece of fresh crumbly bread in my hand, saying, the body of Christ, and handing me the goblet of sweet wine, saying, the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened to me. She finds herself absolutely knocked over by this experience, literally, physically off balance. She's in tears. And on the way home, afterwards, she struggles for some kind of explanation that will make sense to her. Maybe she was hyper-suggestible Maybe her tears were a kind of pent-up sadness for everything that had happened in the last decade of her life. Yet she goes on, that impossible word, Jesus, lodged in me like a crumb. I said it over and over to myself as if repetition would help me understand. I had no idea what it meant. I didn't know what to do with it, but it was realer than any thought of mine, realer even than my most subjective emotions. It was as real as the actual taste of the bread and the wine. And the word was indisputably in my body now. I couldn't reconcile the experience with anything I knew or had been told, but neither could I go away. For some inexplicable reason, I wanted that bread again. The rest of the story is about her passionate determination that this bread that she's received, both physically and in her spiritual self, be shared abroad with whoever needs it, whoever is hungry. She reads everything she can get her hands on about the history of Christianity trying to catch up. She enters fully into the life of the congregation, even becoming a sort of lay deacon herself. But always, restlessly, she is motivated by that memory of the bread that fed her. And even though she continues to move forward in her faith, she finds the path more difficult It wasn't about abstract theological debates, she writes. It was about action. Taste and see, the Bible said, and I did. I was tasting a connection between communion and food, between my burgeoning religion and my real life. Gradually, but relentlessly, she's apparently a very strong-willed woman, She and a few other volunteers work on the idea of opening a weekly food pantry at St. Gregory's, getting the staples from the San Francisco food bank and the fresh fruit and vegetables from the overflow of supermarkets and offering it to whoever wants it, whoever shows up. No forms to fill out, no questions asked. They set the groceries out on colorful cloths around the beautiful new altar and on the altar itself carefully lettered with the words of a 7th century mystic. Did not our Lord share his table with tax collectors and harlots? So do not distinguish between worthy and unworthy. All must be equal for you to serve. So when the first day finally arrives after they've gotten all ready, the doors are open. The people come in and what people they are, the poor, the hungry, the single mothers, the men without work, the grandmothers who don't speak English, the weirdos, the marginalized, the mentally ill, the smelly, the loud, the surprisingly educated and intelligent, all served, all welcome, just as they are. The rest is history. Hundreds today are being served each week with satellite pantries all over town, including the one that we support at Bayview Hunters Point. It isn't perfect, this unfolding reality. Not everyone at St. Gregory's is on board all the time. Because the building itself, which was only built in 1995, is so special and so beautiful. If you've never seen it, I urge you to visit. Some of the parishioners have had trouble with the mess the food pantry causes, even though Sarah and her helpers always clean it up. And the three tons of groceries distributed each week has caused some wear and tear on that beautiful and very expensive altar, handmade of polished hardwood. I confess that I love beautiful things, and I spared a tear for that altar. Yet unsurprisingly, it's because of this messiness and oddness, rather than in spite of it, that Sarah Miles became so committed to her vision. It was the materiality of Christianity that fascinated me, she writes, the compelling story of incarnation in its grungiest details, the promise that words and flesh were deeply deeply connected. I reflected, for example, she says, about Katie and about what it was like to be both a mother and a mother's child. The entire process of human reproduction was, if I considered it for a minute, about as intolerable as the apostles' first thought communion was. It sounded just as weird as the claim that God was in a piece of bread that you could eat. And yet it was true. Then something funny happened. As the crowds of people outside St. Gregory's grew there on Potrero Hill, many of those waiting their turn in line began to hang around afterwards, asking if they could help. Until soon, that little band of co-workers became a community in itself. Each hard-working member, no matter how odd, still absolutely valuable to the others, worthwhile, each of them satisfying their own hunger for meaning and relationship through serving others through the labor and touch of human hands. You can see why all of this came back to me as I began thinking about today's gospel. Jesus is invited by a Pharisee a member of the elite of Jerusalem, to his home for a meal. A highly significant gesture because to share table fellowship with another was to validate that he fit safely inside the restrictions of the complex purity codes that governed everything from eating to sex. With the men reclining there at the table, a strange woman enters the room and falls to the floor at Jesus' feet. To the horror of the Pharisee, the woman, whom he knows to be a sinner, a woman of the city, not only touches Jesus, rendering him unclean, but kisses his feet and bathes them with her tears, pouring ointment over them and drying them with her long hair. We can just imagine the Pharisee writhing in discomfort. Yes, is it not often this same fastidiousness in ourselves, perhaps even this same fear of other people, of their actual bodily reality that keeps us from truly understanding the brute facts of poverty so well hidden among us here in Marin? but so real across the world? Hasn't the word Pharisee itself become a synonym for hypocrisy and self-righteousness, for disapproval of everyone and everything that fails to fit within the strictures of our normal life? The real Pharisee draws back instinctively from the sinful woman's gesture, assuming that Jesus must know who she is or he would surely send her away. But Jesus knows exactly who she is. If he hasn't already seen her in the crowds following him or heard her name bandied about by the men around him, perhaps even among the disciples, he knows all that he needs to know from the tenderness and humility of her gesture, her touch, the way, perhaps, that she looks up at him grateful for his smiling acceptance, understanding that she is known by him, known, valued, and loved. Jesus invites everyone to his table, we say with our friends at St. Gregory's, as we offer the bread and wine to all who desire it, for we who are many are one body, all sharing one real bread, one tangible cup. So that through the grace of God and the blessing of human hands, all those who are on the outside may be invited in and all who are hungry be fed.